0: This series contains frank discussions of sexual abuse, addiction, mental illness, and suicidality. It includes unfiltered and, at times, profane language regarding these topics. Episodes may also contain sarcastic remarks and laughter. Some may deem inappropriate, given the seriousness of the issues covered. Many survivors, myself included, employ humor as a means of self-protection from the feelings brought on by recounting the past. Our goal is not to shock or offend, but rather to provide open, honest, and raw conversation to demonstrate you're not alone and there is a way out. This is Silenced by Stigma. Our guest today is Brad Watts, a licensed professional counselor and certified sex offender treatment provider. He specializes in working with individuals and families where sibling sexual abuses occurred. Brad's helped hundreds of people on their journey to healing following the atrocities of sibling sexual abuse. Through his book, Sibling Sexual Abuse, a guide for confronting America's silent epidemic, Brad has trained communities and groups on how to recognize and respond to incidents of sibling sexual abuse. Hi, Brad. I'm very excited to have you on because what you've done is pretty amazing. You wrote the book on sibling sexual abuse, which is the topic, I'm ashamed to say it didn't even occur to me in all the research I've been doing on sexual abuse. And what's so shocking is the number of people I've spoken with who've either interviewed me or I've interviewed them or even reached out to me online, they've been victims of sibling sexual abuse, and I'm just blown away by it. So to have you on, I think, will be very helpful to the many victims who are apparently out there but their families and loved ones, so they can understand and they can support.
1: Thanks, Michael. I, I really appreciate you having me on and and allowing me to give voice to, to such an important topic. And, and like what what you had talked about, um, I called the book, uh, Civil Sexual Abuse, a Silent Epidemic, America's Silent Epidemic. And what I found is it, it's a worldwide problem. And it's one of the last remaining taboos in our society that we just don't talk about. And, you know, like you, you know, I've really been touched by survivors, you know, talking to me via social media and and emailing me and and sharing their accounts. And I mean, this is a problem that cuts across all demographics. And certainly in America, we have so much that separates us. But this is such a common thread, you know, whether it's the region, whether it's, you know, the race. I mean, it doesn't matter. It, rich or poor, black or white, Hispanic, Asian, it, it doesn't matter. And, um, you know, it's just something that, that I've, I've personally felt passionate about talking about. And so whole genesis behind the book was the fact that, um, you know, I was doing work, you know, and I was just seeing time after time I was working uh, with adolescents that had sexually offend, offended. And I would just see more and more. It's like, you know, sibling sexual abuse just keeps coming up. And so I I put together and wrote this uh, treatment manual for family therapy. So I took it around to some different conferences and presented it. And what I found was just people would come up, a lot of people would come to these presentations, which shocked me. I thought there'd be like five or six people there um, because you know we just don't talk about it. And then they would come up and then they would talk to me afterwards and just share their stories. And I was just really touched. And I really, I noticed there wasn't a book like this out there for parents. So the whole point was to write for parents, to go from point A to, to Z as much as I could going through the process. But what I found is so many survivors, you know, reaching out and I really didn't know what they would think of it. Um, but, you know, I've got a lot of positive feedback from them and for nothing else, just addressing it. And, and certainly I, I talk about what survivors go through quite a bit in the book as well, but um, yeah it's just something that, that you know I feel like we really need to talk about and get rid of this taboo uh, so, so we we can help people know what to do when, when this does happen and, and go from there.
0: It's shocking again to, to use the same word. What I've read is it's generally considered that males or at least adult males commit about 80 percent of all sexual offenses and women uh, commit about 20. Clearly, those are give and take, you know, like a margin of error. What do you find in terms of gender with sibling sexual offenders?
1: Well, Michael, the research says that about 93% of, of uh, males commit sibling sexual abuse, and about 7% of females are uh, offending in, in, that, in that way. Um, you know, the, the numbers are, are likely off a bit. You know, um, I was reading a, a research study yesterday talking about how with uh, with females they typically don't come into the system it, they're more treated as victims in those kinds of situations and so it's hard to get an accurate total so I, you know the short answer is i don't know but if i was going to guess it would be higher
0: yeah underreporting of female sexual offenders is something researchers mention constantly you know they essentially say oh you know this study is about female sexual offenders But they also state that their numbers are clearly impacted by underreporting. So they're struggling with it as well. And I ask about the gender differential because I read a report, a 2009 report from the Department of Justice entitled Juveniles Who Commit Sexual Offenses Against Minors. Now, here's what I found of juvenile sexual offenders, not general population, but of juvenile offenders. 31% of girls begin at or before the age of 12, and it's 15% for boys. 23% of girls abuse multiple victims. For boys, it's at uh, 12%. 37% of girls abuse in conjunction with others, like presumably with a peer. That number is about 23% for boys. 14% of girls abuse in conjunction with an adult, and for boys, that's five percent. This disparity is very surprising, not only when compared to the gender breakdown of adult sexual offenders, but also with what you're seeing in sibling offenders. And I just don't know where to go with that. I can't reconcile it, you know, in my head. What do you think hearing these numbers? Yeah,
1: I hadn't heard that before and it's 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 interesting, an interesting say that you shared. And, you know, certainly something I want to explore more, but the, the fact that these girls are starting, again, the, that are sexual offending, um, starting so much younger because, you know, the research with, with sibling sexual abuse, you're looking at males starting at about 15, the average age of, of victims, particularly most of those victims are, as we know, um, girls, um, you know, being seven or eight, you know, about 25% are, are male on male um, sibling sexual abuse. But yeah, I mean, it's, so you're saying the girls are starting, you know, at least three to four years younger than these boys
0: are. And there's higher percentages, which I mean, I'd reach out to the department of justice, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not going to take my call, (laughs) but I would really like to hear about this. So you've worked with offenders and now you work with the victims. Yeah. I think it would be very helpful to talk about offender typology, their thoughts after the fact, recidivism rates for sure, and if you think there's any sort of true reformation.
1: Yeah. uh, So I worked for several years, you know, exclusively uh, with with uh, offending youth, and 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 so you know what we there's a lot of factors that go in. There isn't a standard profile, you know, for you know, this, this is what you look for. This is this is an offending youth. Um, you know, situations are different. Uh, they're a heterogeneous group. There's been research talking about that since really as early as the 50s and certainly on the 80s on. And it's a lot different than, than adult offenders. And so one of the things I really enjoyed was the fact that you see a lot of progress that that, go, that goes on with them. Because as we know, a lot of it goes back to brain development. You know, we know that adolescent brains aren't fully developed until around the mid-20s. You know, particularly when you're talking about the prefrontal cortex and the ability to help you to regulate emotions, decision-making, impulsivity, all those kinds of things. And so what I found is, and and we would treat kids for quite a while. So your average stay in a residential treatment facility in North America for adolescent sexual offending is going to be about 14 months. and so you know, you're with them for quite a while in that setting. Obviously, everybody doesn't go to that setting. Um, but there's a lot that, that goes on. And as, as you might expect, there's a lot of resistance in the beginning. And then we see that start to change and, and kids start to open up and they learn. And, uh, you know, the real keys in that is honesty, accountability, you know, responsibility, you know, the development of empathy, um, teaching them, you know, healthy and appropriate boundaries, teaching them, you know, some some guys just lack any kind of real sexual education on it, depending on the age of the kid. But, you know, and we get more into that a little bit later. But, you know, when you look at recidivism rates, it, it's astounding when you look at 3 to 5% is what the latest research, according to Dr. James Worling and others, uh, you know, estimate, um, that they'll go back and reoffend and, and get rested and those kinds of things again. And so, my experience has been these guys do reform um, through treatment. And the real key is getting them into treatment, into a specialized treatment program prior to 18. Those numbers are phenomenal um, because you, you look at a lot that, that goes on, them not considering due to the, the nature of their brain development at that point. And we can talk about how pornography plays a huge role in that and other
0: things. If I could interject, but pornography, there's been this disturbing wave for like the last, I don't know, at least five years of sort of this mother-son, stepmother-son, stepsister, which is just, it's absolutely insane. And granted, they're clearly not blood-related, but I think. This is stepping into some very dark territory, and look, I'm absolutely not a prude, but this is very dangerous stuff. Has that sort of come up with any of your offenders, where they talk about these sort of really bizarre niches? Yeah.
1: So, so pornography is a huge problem uh, across, the board, you know, with these teenagers, as you might imagine, you know. Th- so. According to Simon Logenes, I'm quoting this right, he found in his his work that the average time, the the average age that a boy seeks out pornography, not sees but seeks it out, is 10 years old. So think about how old parent or or kids are when parents are teaching them about sex. So usually I get a lot of answers like, "Oh, 14." Well, we will just say that's an example. Let's say 13. So. A kid has three years. Where are they going to get their information at? Well, they're going to go to pornography. They're going to go to pornography because they're talking to friends at school. that will whip out a phone and say, look at this, or, you know, so they can learn about sex, so they can feel like that they're fitting in. And then imagine the 10-year-old brain thinking this is reality. This is what sex is. And then not only that, with the boys, this is what manhood is. This is what masculinity is. This is what relationships are. Um, So that's a huge problem because pornography has become the primary educator of our children about sex. And it's getting, as you talk about, more and more and more and more deep. Um, And and so, yes, that that is a pattern that you see kids start from, you know, whatever you want to say, you want to say heterosexual sexual relations, you know, it goes up, it goes up to rape, porn, to a lot of force, um, to obviously a lot of incestual kinds of things, stepbrother, stepsister. I mean, it, and it tends to increase in, in that level, And that if you want to use that word deviancy, you know, which is what I use for it, um, seems like every year. And so there's an interesting study, Anna Bridges did, but this was 10 years ago, um, and, and she, she did a content analysis of the top 50 uh, pornographic videos at the time. And they were littered with acts of hitting, slapping, choking, gagging. This is eleven years ago, and, and so it's littered with that. And and ninety eight percent of those acts were done by, as you might imagine, men towards women. So, for example, and she uses uh, Marie Allen quotes this study in a great TED talk that, that I love. And so she says, use the example. I use this example with you. So if I walk up to you in the street. And I slap you, well, what's your natural reaction gonna be? And probably run, right? Well, and and so many of these pornographic movies, well, what do they do? The the women in a when they're hit or slapped or choked or gagged, they start moaning and, and, and some sort of or shouting for more or some kind of positive enforcement that we would never happen out there. So think about how that affects. The teen- the, not teenager, but a lot of times kids, but they are some teenagers or a lot of teenagers, how that affects your brain. Because you're like, this is what I need to do. Um, and so it's obviously it kind of starts there. Now I'm not saying every kid that looks at porn is going to go out and sexually offend, But like what Maria said in her TED Talk, uh, which is so profound, is the fact that we do know from research that porn changes, particularly when women are dehumanized, changes our attitudes towards women. And so it puts, puts these kids in a much higher risk group on top of, of the way porn messes with their brains. Um, we could talk about dopamine and the way that, that's affected in the receptors. So it, it can lead these kids who get involved in this you know, to more and more deviant acts and can lead to sexual
0: effects. What you've just said, and without any hyperbole, that's one of the most disturbing things I've heard in a long time. But you know how it used to be, right? There was a playboy out in the woods, wrapped in a Ziploc that some kid stole from under his dad's bed. But that was just a naked woman, right? Like As opposed to what you're saying with that extraordinary violence and dehumanization of women. And giving that to a kid, especially a kid who has nothing at all to compare that to, is no real-world experience with true sexuality or sexual expression. There's absolutely nothing good that's going to come from that. It's 100% harm for everyone who's going to be involved. So what you've said about recidivism and reformation fits right in line with a therapist that I spoke to recently who also works with kids who sexually offend. She said they turn around. Like they can be changed, which is absolutely amazing. But I wonder after these 14 month programs that you're talking about, even with all the constant work that they're doing, do they go back home? And then there's the sibling that they abused. Is that what happens?
1: Well, there, there's a process with that.
0: Typically, when they leave
1: out of, uh, let's say, residential, for example, they're not going to go. Uh, typically straight home. You know, a lot of times they may step down to a group home until family re- reunification can be done. So that that requires, that's the first step is them completing that that treatment program. So there's different options. Sometimes they can live with a grandmother or an aunt and uncle that, that, or where that victim is not in the home, but they need to be brought together. And that's only if the family wants to do that. If the victim wants to do that, the survivor. So if the survivor wants to do that, you know, they, the therapists then work in, in conjunction with each other, and you go through what's called, you know, family reunification, you know, process. And, and those are, you know, can go over a course of months, you know, working and, and different tasks. And, but yeah, that they can and they do um, go back home. But like I had a survivor, I was doing a, doing a, a show, and, and, you know, she, she expressed real concern, feeling like I was pushing family reunification. I told her no. I mean, that's all at the, the decision of the victim and the family. Um, so, so that survivor is preeminent in this process. Um, so, but but every situation is different. Like like I said, it's very you know heterogeneous and and um, just depending on on where the family's at.
0: Right. But as someone who's completely uninformed about this topic, my first thought when you were saying this was the sibling who was victimized and experienced that atrocity, like, isn't even asking the question, you know, hey, would you like your sibling who abused you to come back home? Isn't that in and of itself inappropriate and frightening? The fact that it's even an option, is that traumatizing just by itself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Michael, that, that's a great point. So every, like I said, every situation is different, but the Really, some of the nuances of sibling sexual abuse is, let's say it's a little sister, a little brother. You love your sibling, and, and you have these these mixed emotions. You know, it's like you don't want to be hurt anymore. And look, every survivor is different, so I don't want to speak for, for any kind of survivor. I'm just kind of speaking generally. Um, you know, that's based on, on what they want to do and where they're at. The best thing parents can do for that traumatized kid, survivor, is to take action. So the fact that they're in therapy hopefully means that they stepped in and that they said, you know, we're not going to put up with this. We believe you, Susie, you know, when you mustered all the courage in the world and and you can't even fathom how hard it is to disclose abuse. And most people in sibling sexual abuse never disclose. And there's recent research out here that says the delay in in disclosure is somewhere between three and 18 years. So you're talking people. Experiencing sibling sexual abuse, not telling anybody, sometimes till their forties, if at all. So let's say she discloses as a child, as a young person, and then they step in and take action. So what the family is now communicating to, to their their survivor is that we care for you and we're going to protect you. And you know they they take appropriate action. And we could talk for days about all the things parents go through in this. Um, But then you're taking that action. You're holding them accountable. You've got Susie in therapy. And then if she, if that's something she wants to do, absolutely. But, but all cases aren't aren't going to end up in in reunification. And it's like what we've talked about. It's a case by case basis. And, and you're right. And this is what this, this lady emphasized to me is, yeah, we shouldn't be pushing. and, And that does happen where families are like, we want to reunify. We want to reunify Susie. Come on, let's do it. Let's do it. We don't want to do anything like that. Um, but but it's a very kind of cautious and, and fragile thing. And, you know, it, it, the, what's most important is, Suzy, in this case, Susie's safety and that we're keeping her safe. And if during reunification sessions she decides she doesn't want to do it anymore, that's it. There's no vote. There's no, there's no debate. You know, it stops. You know, it is initiated by that kid, you know, wanting to do it. So some of those age differences, you're not going to see families reunify. So, for example, if a 16-year-old is going to, you know, offense on his six-year-old sister, well, he's going to be out of the home, you know. But eventually, you know, there needs to be some kind of, we would call, reconciliation, if not reunification, you know, because survivors tend to want to know, why'd you do it? I want to know you've changed. I want answers, you know, and it's being open and and humble as an offending kid to be be answering those tough questions, you know, when, when they come to ask.
0: Yeah. So that brought up two questions for me. I'd like to ask the first one is in having worked with these offenders, what are their stated reasons? And then also, what do you believe the actual reason may be?
1: Okay, so what do they state again? Again, those are going to be varied. I'm just trying to think some, some different themes. I'm telling you, porn has a huge deal with it. So I'll, I'll just kind of outline an example. I'll try to be uh, not too exhaustive with it, um, but kids get you know involved in porn. So let's say let's say they're looking at porn for a couple of years. You're sneaking up at night looking at porn, going around firewalls at school on bones. phones. Bones are usually the biggest one. And you start looking, you're like, hey, I really want to, I want to act out what I'm seeing." And maybe the kid's a little awkward. Maybe the kid has some social deficits. Maybe the kid's just like, I don't know anybody that will let me do this. Well, let me think. Who would do this? Well, guess what? I can, I can make my little brother or sister do it. I can make my little cousin that lives with us do it. Um, and, 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 you know, a lot of times it, it's used in... Um, there is out, out force, of course, but a lot of times it's through grooming, through pressure, through guilt, you know, so, so they'll start showing, uh, let's say their little sister porn, um, you know, and, and then having them act those out, you know, so, so they're, they're forcing them um, into that sexual behavior. Then they're using that that relationship, that abuse, to pressure them and coerce them into silence. So most of these kids aren't going outside of the home. It would be a much higher risk even if they were going outside the home. But they're like, that's too risky for me. You know, they're not grabbing, you know, um, Amy in the bathroom at school and raping her in the bathroom. They're using, the, you know, their influence, their relationship to abuse their, their sister. So that's why it goes on for much longer periods of time. And so it'll be things like, well, you know that Susie loves playing video games. Well, I'll let you play these video games. Oh, you like this candy? You love Skittles? I'm going to get you Skittles. You know, either to groom or keep you quiet. And then it's it's implicit, right? And it's just kind of understood. And then they'll use it verbally too. But hey, you can't, this is our secret. You can't tell anybody because if you do, I'm going to get in trouble. And you don't want me going away, do you? Because think about the role of a big brother. Naturally, is big brother is what? The protector, right? He, he's seen as he is supposed to protect me. So there is trust. There's natural trust in that. Like, you know what? My big brother would never do anything to hurt me. And then it's, they do. And think about how that just shatters these kids. And, you know, in shock and living in the fear and horror every night of when that will happen. And the other thing with these kids is these offending kids is, you know the patterns in your home, all right? So I I know when mom and dad aren't there or whatever the, the makeup may be, and a lot of times, there's a lack of supervision. You know that they take advantage of. Um, sometimes the older brothers put in these positions of responsibility. Um, we even call it like a, a John Caffaro called it a parentified child. You know, where basically, you know, it's like a little adult, and so in these supervision roles, cause problems. So that's how they they, they exploit the relationship, and that's why there's so much trauma to these survivors, and not just when they're children or adolescents but years later as adults when nothing was done about it.
0: I don't even know how to react to what you're saying. And I really should have been better prepared because this, this is just so upsetting of what you're bringing up right now. And I will say, I think smartphones are great, right? To give a kid the ability to contact their parents at any time is absolutely critical. And also to reach out to their friends and catch up and, you know, that's important for them to socialize. But they're also holding a rectangle that gives them unfettered access to an entire world of pornography at an age where it can only do damage. And it seems like now there's no way to put that genie back in the bottle. So, the parents, when this comes out, if the victimized child steps forward. What is the general response, or would you say, like, there's no real general response? How do the parents react to this?
1: Well, this one, I do feel like there is more of a general reaction is, and, and you might imagine this as well, and I think most people out there would, would have the same reaction, is it's shock, it's confusion, it's fear. It's, you go through these stages, it's, but initially it's, I can't believe this. They're, they're, you, this has to be wrong. No, you, you must be mistaken. It, it, well, it's not abuse. You know, it, it's, then they confuse it with, with, is it sexual play, sexual curiosity? It's like, well, he did what? Or she did what? You know, regardless of the gender. Um, so yeah, it's shock, confusion, um, frustration, terror, you know, as far as parents. And one thing I want to interject here is, you know, when we talk about the silence of it, it's the fact that, if I find out my wife has cancer, you know that's not something I have to keep a secret. You know I can sit here, I can reach out to my friends, and say, "Hey, you know my wife has cancer," or I can post on social media and say, and talk, "Hey, please pray for my wife. Right? Who could? Who's a good doctor? Um, treatments? Anything like that?" Well, with siblings, sexual abuse, you, you know, no one's going to be out there and post online. Oh, by the way, you know my my son sexually abused my my you know daughter. Um, where, where do I go? What do I do? You never do that. You know, because it's it's such a secret. It's so taboo. Um, you keep it in-house. So parents get, get fearful. They don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. And then they're left with a critical choice. I can either, we can try and sweep this under the rug, not do anything, which is the worst thing that they can do, or you go and report it or see a therapist, somebody like me, who is a mandated reporter and has to report it. Um, you know, because it is, it's an impossible situation and, and, but it, it's so critical that parents that we break down these walls of silence and let them understand how common this is and what, and that's all reason I wrote the book so that they can know what to do and more than anything to know that they're not alone and that families can and do heal, you know, kids do change and, and things can be put back together. It's just a long, hard road, but, but they can
0: get there. And I imagine some of the parents may even blame themselves or, you know, how did I not see that? Which I'm pretty sure is a common reaction when you find out your kid of any age has been abused. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book called Talking to Strangers, and he interviewed some of the parents of Larry Nasser's victims. Remember the, uh, the doctor for the gymnast? Yeah. Some of the parents were in the examination room while he was touching these women in ways that were just absolutely vile and the parents said they had no idea so gladwells hypothesis is that what was happening was so inconceivable that they they couldn't see it yeah. they couldn't process what was happening you know because who would think that this is even i mean it's it's just so brazen and so horrifying And my guess is parents react that way when they hear this stuff about their kid being abused. I mean, you talk about shock. I guess it's like finding out that gravity doesn't exist anymore. It's just like it's so shaking on a fundamental level. And speaking about this inability to recognize something that's so horrifying, not being able to see it. what it is. Of the women who've told me that they were sexually abused, of those three women, each said their parents refused to believe it and that they denied it. And one woman said she tried to reconcile with her mother, who'd always denied or refused to believe that the sibling sexual abuse took place. And she said while visiting her mother on her deathbed, she said, My mother's last words to me were shut up when I tried to make peace about this. And I'm not sure that you'd even know because it's probably unreported. But if you had to guess, is it uncommon for parents to deny it to the point where they blame the victim or think they're making something up and essentially vilifying them or refusing to sever or adjust the relationship with the child? Who was the abuser? Yeah,
1: uh, I, I, yeah. If I was gonna going make a claim on that, yes, I would say that that's the response most of the time. You know, majority of the time, I, I would know like percentages. But like I said, you know, I, I hear all kinds of accounts from adult survivors, and yeah, the, what you're talking about is they're shamed. You know, that they, how could you suggest this? You know, all the worst things, We, you know, it's just a disastrous response to all the courage in the world that these people are showing to disclose whenever they're disclosing, whether it's at eight years old, whether it's at 68 years old, Um, you know, and it's like they did nothing wrong. They're just speaking what actually happened.
0: Right. And to have your parents whose primary job is to protect you, to not only have... Yeah. That familiar relationship with the sibling be destroyed. But you have your parents not support you or disbelieve you. And that has got to shatter every concept you have about trust and about relationships. And I, I want to talk about the victims now that's what you're specializing in. How's the recovery process? Like, can they end up where they maybe do reach a place? Where they can live with it, compartmentalize it, or whatever that may be. What is that process?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it goes as different as people can be. You know, I mean, everybody's different with it. You know, one thing that's interesting, like with sibling sexual abuse, it's really treatment for the whole family. You know, it, it's, it's, it's so important to get. But yeah, I mean, people in a family are, are different. When you talk about a survivor, you know, being at, at a certain place, parents, and, and even if, if a couple's married and it's their kids, they're not going to be at the same place at the same time in, in most cases. You know, you'll have one one parent that's better with it, another one that, that isn't, and, and that can flip-flop. And, you know, it's just so important that everybody gets in there. You know, re- results can be really good. I, I've talked to survivors that have done really well as they, have you know, obviously they have their moments and something that, that is a struggle. But where they're in a much much better place uh, through therapy. The problem, and why it extends so long, is you know people aren't getting into therapy. Um, you know, it's not a quick fix, as, as you know, you know, and um, as we can imagine. But you know, it's just getting in therapy, working on that. There's some really good, um, you know, trauma work that can be done. You know, that can really go a long way in addressing it. But I just see. Situations get, you know, the trauma gets more and more complex, you know, the longer this goes and, and, you know, and not receiving treatment.
0: If a sibling survivor were to seek therapy on their own, either because their parents don't know or aren't supportive, and I imagine seeking therapy alone would obviously mean they're an adult, how do you find that kind of work turns out? You know, the longer that they've held on to this, does it bring an adult perspective or is it that they've been carrying it around for so long that it's a much rougher road?
1: Well, the, the, certainly, you know, in my, and then obviously I'm not a survivor. I'm just looking through the eyes of others. Um, but yeah, there's more to unpack. And and so, you know, you talk about as an adult, you know, carrying that for so long. And, and so a lot of times adults will present the therapy with, They're not coming in for, hey, I want to talk about, Brad, I want to see, I want to talk about sibling sexual abuse. They're like, hey, I've got an addiction, you know drugs, or I've got, I can't keep a job, or I'm depressed, or I'm anxious, or I've got anger issues. And then you start working on those and you understand those are just symptoms. You know, you get to the trunk, to the root of everything. A lot of these start you know, self-esteem issues, you know, and in- in intimacy issues, relationship issues comes down to, hey, uh, my brother sexually abused me for four years, you know, during my youth and adolescence, and my parents never acknowledged that, you know, and, uh, you know, my brother was never even grounded, you know, for what he did, even as I disclosed, well, how do you trust? How do you have relationships? You know, I mean, you have a, a you know, I read a study, I don't can't remember the exact numbers. But a significant number of sibling sexual abuse survivors will never marry, you know, and choose not to marry because of those issues. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, I really marvel at how well so many survivors do through treatment because you talk about being put behind the eight ball in life, um, having to go through all these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, it's just really, we, we just as a society, you know, we, we need to unite work to, to root out this problem as much as we can.
0: All those comorbidities that you just mentioned are identical to any sexual abuse survivor. I mean, those possible problems, not that everyone is saddled or burdened you know, with all of it. I mean, it's exactly the same. Interpersonal problems, professional problems where they just jump job to job, financial struggles. Do you know that 80% of male sexual abuse victims who have been married, are, or have been divorced, right? I mean, that impact is just, I mean, this is just extraordinary. In your book, do you feel that it's better suited to the family members to be supportive or to the victims themselves to realize that, you know, they're not alone?
1: So it's, it's really for everybody. Um, and, and so i i wrote it covering every kind of aspect that you can think of i mean it's for people that that don't know anything about it you know certainly it, it's a, a big design of it is for families or, or workers that, that support families through this you know, there's quite a bit in there that's for survivors you know as I, as I mentioned earlier uh to try and validate what what they what they're going through and and what to expect and, and how to kind of uh hopefully handle things there but And a big part of it is a call to action for you, for me, for all of us uh, to get involved, to do like what you're doing, you know, talking about it, you know, on social media, posting about it, you know, contacting our our politicians know, trying to get um, bills passed for these families, funds, you you know, whatever it may be. But the biggest thing we can do is just simply talk about it and try and break down the walls of taboo and normalize, let people know that they're not alone and that we're here to support them as as a society, as brothers and sisters on earth, um, to be there for one another and to to break down this last bastion of taboo that we won't talk about, you know, and and protect our children, protect our family, protect everyone, you know, to to help those offenders, those kids that are offending to rehabilitate. Because think about what that means is if they're not, and they go on offending in their lives, then calculable damage that, that that goes on. Those are the Larry Nassers, the Jerry Sandusky's of the world, um, that, that we want to eradicate too. But, but these kids can change and survivors can heal. Um, and, and it's, it's not easy. You know, as, 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 we all know, I mean, I can't think of, of much more that would be more difficult in life, um, than any, any victim of sexual abuse, but particularly within your family who's supposed to protect you. Um, you know, that's why that, you know, uh, just, just exacerbates the problem. But, you know, each one of us, you know, to, to talk about it. You know, we don't need experience. You don't need to be a therapist. Uh, it, people don't need to be survivors. Um, but we all can talk about it and learn about it and, and uh, you know, and reach out.
0: Yeah. You know, the recovery and the healing, certainly with problems like this, is so much more effective when you have all these people behind you, everyone coming together. And I wish that more people come forward and start doing that. It has been absolutely illuminating speaking with you. And I appreciate your time and I wish I could steal more of it in this moment. But I want to thank you for coming on and having this discussion. So, I hope you have a really good day and we'll talk soon
1: well thanks for having me michael i really appreciate it anytime
0: links to our guests website email and social media are in the description we'll be back in two weeks but in the meantime remember everybody sucks but you